Welcome to the Shalom Hartman Institute podcast. I'm Alan Abbey. The Hartman Institute is a center of transformative thinking and teaching. We address the major challenges facing the Jewish people and elevate the quality of Jewish life in Israel and around the world. Now is the time to consider attending a study retreat with us this summer. Our programs for community leaders and rabbis have been running for decades. For details on seminars in Israel and North America, go to hartman.org.il. And now, Rabbi Daniel Gordis, a guest speaker at the Institute. His lecture is titled, After Israel, the Jewish People After the Jewish State. Jerusalem is a is not only an interesting city, it's an exceptional city. And one of the things that makes it exceptional is the amount of outstanding institutions and outstanding individuals who you get to see, rub elbows with, run into, and in my case also, individuals as well who you get to be friends with, who in, in North America You'd have to travel 10 hours, 5 hours, 4 hours. Here we're all in this, in the neighborhood. And, and the concentration of talent, the concentration of, of really exceptional individuals and exceptional institutions is quite remarkable. And one of the, there was a liberating moment somewhere, I don't know, back in my career, um, a number of years ago, when you realize that we as a city and as a Jewish people are so much better precisely because there are multiple institutions, each one contributing to Jewish life, each one contributing to the Jewish people in different ways. The Shalem Center, where Daniel Gordis is senior vice president, is one of those wonderful forces of good in the state of Israel. It has done wonderful things for Israel, and its plans now to develop a college are, are, are constantly trying to ask themselves, how do we take this country and move it forward? And all of us together, um, it's, Israel was a time, when it, there was a time in Israel when, when you wanted to do something, you asked, when's the government going to do it? Now it's the era of the NGOs, and Daniel's a vice president of a truly outstanding institution doing wonderful things in this country. And uh, it's also nice, it's such a nice thing to also live with institutions who are all doing good things and also have all committed to speaking nicely about each other. And so it's like almost a messianic era and we, and speak, and we feel that way. It's just, it's just, it's a good, it's, it's, it's such a nice thing when no one thinks Kula Shali using the old, uh, and, and Shalem is, has done wonderful things. But not only is this a city of great institutions, it's also a city of great people. And, um, and uh, it's, a, it's really a, 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 an absolute pleasure for me to introduce a very close friend of mine, someone who I think we made Aliyah at a similar, very similar, I think the same year, and uh, have similar age children and, and have watched Israel and watched each other grow and have shared a lot of very, very important moments together. Um, Daniel Gordis has a very long bio and just briefly is the senior vice president of the Shalem Center as a doctorate from the University of Southern California. He's an author of numerous books. Recently, he just won the uh, National Jewish Book Award for his latest book called How the Jewish People Can Win a War That May Never End. But his, everyone, you know, it's, it's extremely difficult to be somebody who, who reads something in the Jewish world today who doesn't know Daniel's, uh, Danny's name and who hasn't read what he writes. But one of the things that's impressed me most about him is that over the years as I traveled to North America, I would be hard-pressed to identify any individual who's had more impact on the way North American Jews think about Israel than Daniel Gordis. Um, people read what he writes, people understand Israel through what he writes, and, uh, and people connect, care, and are involved in Israel through what he writes. Um, he has positioned and earned the position of being one of the most central communicators of Israel, 
uh, to world Jewry. Um, and uh, for that alone, um, it would be a pleasure to introduce him. For the things he does for the Jewish people, it would be a double pleasure. And for the fact that he is uh, the father of children who go to Harpen High School, it would be a triple pleasure. <laughs> and the fact that he says nice things about the Harpen Institute's high school would be fifth. But over most of all, the fact that he is a very dear friend makes it a, I don't know, we're up to what number, quadruple or whatever pleasure. Daniel Gordis, please. Well, the lecture won't be as nice as the introduction, I assure you. Uh, first of all, let me just begin by thanking Daniel for the really over-the-top introduction. My only regret is that my kids weren't here to hear it. Um, but the truth is that, as Daniel knows, at least uh, two of them who have gone to high school here have had life-altering educational experiences. Actually, those people who were in the little group that I was teaching this morning can vouch for the fact that I actually spoke about the Hartman High School and I was talking about what was going right in Israeli education. So not knowing that you were going to say that, uh, I actually tried to echo some of the same thoughts earlier this morning or earlier this afternoon. Uh, but it is really a great, it is really a thrill to be at the Hartman Institute. It is a pleasure and an honor to be with a person who I treasure. We started doing this sorts of stuff together, I think, back at Brandeis Bardeen. I think it was 1990. We were both seven years old. And um, in many events, we've been doing this for a very long time, and Daniel is really a person from whom I learned a tremendous amount uh, about a lot of things, both intellectually and Jewishly, and about real vision for institutions of extraordinary importance. Uh, what he's been able to do, taking the legacy of those who came before him and refashion the institute facing Israel's newest challenges in the world. Jewish community's newest challenges is, I think, actually a study in visionary institutional leadership and management. And so to watch it from afar and to schmooze about it here and there on Shabbat and so forth is, is a pleasure and it's a delight to be here with all of you. Some new faces, a lot of familiar faces, and so forth. So thank you very much for the very warm introduction. Uh, the title that you were given tonight uh, was After Israel, the Jewish People After the Jewish State. So I know what you want to know is what's the date of that? Uh, so you can sort of sell your apartment, or whatever the case may be. Uh, I don't want to get into dates. We'll talk about some dates, but we're not going to talk about those dates. Uh, I would offer it um, two other possible titles. A pithy title, which would tell you nothing, would be A Tale of Two Mythologies. And if I was going to give it a little bit of a longer title, I would call it Invulnerable or Destined for Defeat, The Two Dangerous Mythologies of Contemporary Jewish Life. And what I would like to do tonight is talk about those two mythologies. And I'll tell you, you know, a lot of us in this room went to rabbinical school. Uh, some of us even survived rabbinical school. So we'll, we were all told, you know, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, tell them what you told them. I may not have enough time to tell them what I told them, but I will tell you what I'm going to tell you and then tell you. That did make sense. But uh, in any event, I want to make the claim that there are two competing equally kind of mutually negating and powerful mythologies of Jewish life at play in the Jewish world today. One, and I'll try to trace its origins, is a mythology of imminent and inevitable doom. And one is a mythology of invulnerability. And I think that we actually believe each of those mythologies at various points in time. And the combination of them leads us to a place where we either cannot or need not do anything. If it's imminent doom, there's nothing we can do. And if it's invulnerability, there's nothing that we need do. And the result of those two is that as a, in response to an American Jewish world that is dramatically changing, in response to an international climate, Jewish and otherwise, that is dramatically claiming, we fall back on those two mythologies. Either it's a farfal and a zach anyway. So what's the point? We'll do what we can, but we're not going to do very much. Or what's to worry about? We're invulnerable. It's going to be fine. And the Mechanem Shutaf, what those two things have in common is, I don't need to do a tremendous amount. And I would like to suggest that we face a genuine crisis, and not nearly enough of us are doing nearly enough. Now, the people in this room are obviously the exceptions to that rule, by virtue of the work that you do, by virtue of the fact that you're here, by virtue of the fact that you care enough about the state of Israel to be situated here at this moment. So when I say we or I say you, we're talking about the larger Jewish world. It's not intended in any kind of an ad hominem way. So what I will do is begin by delving into these two mythologies. First, the mythology of imminent loss or imminent demise, inevitable loss or demise, and then we'll come back to the notion of invulnerability. So you all are aware 
that we are in the middle of the three weeks. We are actually even in the middle of the nine days. Some people are already going through withdrawal. It depends on who you are, what you're in withdrawal from. But um, various stages of withdrawal from all sorts of things or dread of, you know, fast day at a balmy 104 degrees or whatever the case uh, may be. But there's something actually really extraordinary about this gradual crescendo of the three weeks, the nine days, the Shavuot Shachalbo, and finally Tisha B'Av itself, which is that everybody who's even marginally familiar with the Jewish world can tell you the date on which the temples were destroyed. It's true that to a certain extent this is a holiday in America that was perpetuated mostly by summer camps. But nonetheless, you know, people in traditional Jewish world can tell you that Tisha B'Av was the day. And there's a lot of other days that we can actually enumerate on the calendar in which things of cosmic importance to the Jews happened, most of which were negative. But if you open up a Tanakh, there were a lot of victories of the Jewish people. There were victories of Yehoshua. There were victories in the times of the Shoftim. There were victories in the times of David HaMelech. And we cannot name those victories, and we don't know their dates. We are a tradition, at least in the biblical world, that is consumed with defeat. Now, it sounds strange, but I think it's really true. And a lot of work has been done on this by people much wiser than I and much better scholars than I. One of the ones who comes to mind is Jacob Bright of Emory University, who's done a lot of work on the whole issue of the theme of defeat in the Tanakh, and so on and so forth. But I just want to do this at a very, very global level and to say that we are actually much more comfortable in the biblical world commemorating defeat than we are celebrating victory. And the biblical world is actually, or the biblical text, is actually a very strange national historical document. It's a strange narrative. Most peoples that tell their story tell the story of their great successes. Most people that tell their story tell they conquered this. Look at the Arch of Titus. We look at it and say, that's the stuff they stole from us. Right? But the Arch of Titus is a classic example. Or L'Arc de Triomphe in Paris, whatever the case may be. We have exactly the opposite. We don't have the arch of triumph, we have the arch of defeat. We have the fast of defeat, the fasts of defeat, the weeks of defeat, the period of defeat. We are a biblical tradition, at least we'll come back to Israel in a little while, but the biblical tradition is infinitely more comfortable focusing on the various defeats than it is the successes. And when you think of the biblical tradition as our national narrative, that's unbelievably strange. Because most peoples in the world don't tell their own story that way. Even the stories of our own lives, most of us will admit mistakes and defeats and setbacks, but fundamentally we seek to tell the story of our own lives as a woven fabric that tells the story of positive movement forward. Now, there are exceptions, obviously. There is Purim, but Purim is not about success that takes place in Eretz Yisrael. It takes place outside. There is Hanukkah, but Hanukkah is transformed by the rabbis, as we all know from the Gemara and Shabbat, really into a kind of a religious experience rather than a national military experience, and so on and so forth. And basically, the Bible has what, as I mentioned this morning briefly, David Noel Friedman calls a primary history. The primary history is... God picks Abraham, tells Abraham, originally called Abraham, obviously, to go to Emma He goes down, he gets sidelined, there's famine, goes to Egypt, they make their way back to Egypt, they're on the east side of the Jordan River, we're now at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Joshua and Judges, we're going to work our way into the land. It was not an empty land, it was a full land that was full of people. It's complicated, it's messy. Just like today, it's complicated and it's messy. And we get a king. We get a second king who's much better. We get a third king who's worse. Then the kingdom split, the north and the south. Once you're split with Assyria to the north and Egypt to the south, your days are numbered and the story's over in exile. That, according to David Nolfribe, that's the history of the Tanakh. Now, it's true that there's an afterthought, which we'll come back to in a second, but the history of the Tanakh is fundamentally, we tried to get into the land, we tried to build a monarchic system that worked, we succeeded for a very short period of time, relatively speaking, we got thrown out, and we were exiled, and al-Naharot Bavel, sham yashavnu gambachinu bezochreinu until 1948. But really, until 1948. In other words, for 2,000 years, the message that we told about ourselves was a message of we failed. For 2,000 years, the real story that we told Ezra and Nehemiah, the footnote, it's true, and at the end of the Rei Hayalim Bet, it comes back and says, well, you sort of tried to get in at the end, and Koresh was sort of a good guy, and he allowed you. That's all well and good and true, but fundamentally, the basic argument of the Tanakh is that the Jewish people failed, it was defeated, and that fundamentally what it means to be a Jew to a certain extent is to prepare yourself for that failure. 
Now, there's a lot of examples of this, we don't have time to go into all of it tonight, but just take one example. Amos and Hosea, but we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about Amos for a second. Uh, Amos prophesies in the time of Yeravam II, which is actually a period of reasonable stability for the kingdom of which he is, uh, for the kingdom of which he is uh, prophesying. And look what he talks about and says when he recites what he's going to do for the Davidic dynasty one day. In other words, the Davidic dynasty, what he tells you, is going to fall. He's in the northern kingdom, so it's more complicated. But basically, look what he says. And I'll translate this in a second. That's the promise. Now, what's it going to be like? To just do the last part, how is God going to restore the whatever's left after the Davidic dynasty? I will restore my people Israel. They shall rebuild ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall till gardens, eat their fruits. And I will plant them upon their soil, never more to be uprooted from the soil I have given them, says the Lord your God. But there's no kingdom. There's no kings. There's no dynasties. It's just people. Back on their land, doing their thing. Planting their vineyards, making their wine, importing their scotch. It's just people doing their thing. The idea that somehow the days of old, Chadesh Yamenu Kekedem, or Lahachazir Atarali Yoshna, is going to happen, is completely absent. It's absent in Hosea, it's absent in Amos, it's absent in, in Yeshayahu, Nun Hei, where he talks about another vision of the future. The biblical tradition prepares us, even when things are going well, for the idea that this cannot last. Now, Why? It's a brilliant move. Because what the Bible effectively communicates to us, it's so effective that we take it for granted. But what the Bible effectively communicates to us is that just because you don't have a state doesn't mean you can't be a nation. The Bible is the preparation, philosophically and politically, for 2,000 years, it didn't know how long it would be, for a long period of exile. It distinguishes between statehood and nationhood. We talk all the time about how the, 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 the Chachamim were smart enough to create a, a, a tradition that moved from sacred space to sacred time, because sacred space couldn't always be guaranteed, but you could create sacred time wherever you wanted. That's well known to us. But we think about much less commonly, I think, is that the entire Tanakh can be read. We have this impending sense of doom. You read your Miyahu, you know it's going to end, and you know it's not going to end well. As soon as you start hearing the language of your Miyahu, already you hear the chorus of exile is coming. Because, as I said a second ago, the Tanakh wants us not to link statehood and nationhood. The Tanakh wants us to understand, at least what was then true, that you can lose the state and still be a nation. So when you think about your state, demise is imminent. You are going to lose it. And it'll be said, we'll write a book, we'll write keynote, we'll sit on the floor, we won't eat, but it'll be okay. That's the message. And you know what it actually sort of was? It also sort of wasn't, but it sort of was. So it's a brilliant strategy. It's a brilliant strategy that prepared us for 2,000 years of not having a state. Now we have, after 1948, we have a new narrative. We have the narrative that says, we are invulnerable. They can't touch us. That's also a brilliant strategy. Because the need, psychologically and spiritually, after the Shoah, was to prove that, that being close to the precipice of extinction, we put that far behind us. We had completely changed the existential condition of what it meant to be a Jew. And there are two dates that are really critically important here. One of them is 1967, and one of them is 1973. 1967 for the reason that you all know, and 1973 for a reason that I think you may not yet have thought of. 1967 is not 1948. 1948 we muddled through. 
We improved the borders. We got armistice lines, which are called the 67 lines, but they're really the 49 lines. We didn't get a deal. We didn't get peace. We didn't get borders. We muddled through. And then 19 years later, the Arab world announced that it was over. Nasser's famous thing about pushing the Jews into the sea. Michael Oren recounts in the beginning of his phenomenal book, Six Days of War, during the period called the Hamtana, the waiting period before everybody knew the war was going to happen, how Israel dug up parks all across the country. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of parks all across the country, they dug up graves. Because they just knew that civilians were going to get slaughtered. And there was this dark humor that was going on during that time when the joke was, the last person out of the airport turned off the lights. That's the continuation of the 1940s. And then in six lightning days, actually less, because it was clear what was going to happen within a few days, but in six lightning days, the entire existential condition of the Jewish people is changed. The size of the Jewish state is tripled. And for really ever and ever and ever, tell them we're not home, forever and ever and ever, what happens is that the Jewish people now feel there's nothing they can do to touch us. And not that many more years go by. 1967 to 1973, it's really only six years, approximately. Six years later, there's Yom Kippur. Now, Yom Kippur, Yossi Klein Alevi, who I know you heard from last night, has argued in certain places that Yom Kippur was Israel's most stunning military victory. And he's serious about that. But whether you buy that argument or the argument that, what, we lost, lost 3,000 kids and we clawed our way back to the borders that we had started with a month earlier, that's not exactly... A, uh, you know, an incredibly military victory, and it was clearly a, an incredible intelligence failure, and Golda Meir lost her job because of it. We all know the story. Here's the thing about 1973 that we never think about. Since 1973, no standing Arab army has dared to attack the Jewish state. Never again. Now, they've tried all sorts of things. Economic boycotts, terrorism, all sorts of other things. But no standing Arab army has ever again since 1973 dared to attack the Jewish state. So the lightning strike on the Egyptian airfields, coupled with the fact that in six days you tripled the size of the country, coupled with the fact that six years later you clawed your way back from what seemed to be doom and got to this point, created among Israelis a sense of invulnerability. Invulnerability does not mean that they can't kill individuals. Invulnerability does not mean that they cannot shake the society to its core by frightening it to death, which they can do, and they have done. But nobody during the Intifada imagined for a split second that as horrifying as it was, that it was going to bring down the state. The hotels were empty. The buses were only half full. The economy was suffering. Everything was going wrong, and nobody imagined the state was going to collapse. Because we knew that in the War of Independence, we'd lost 1% of the civilian population. 1% of our population now would be 75,000 people. They didn't come close to killing 75,000 people. And we won, even when they killed 1% of the population. In other words, there is a sense that we have they can do all sorts of things to us, and nothing at the end of the day is going to shake us. One of the ways of summarizing that relatively quickly, because there's a crowd that knows these two photographs, is to say that one of the, way, one of the things that changed because of 1967 and 1973 was the switch between the very famous photograph of the little boy in the Warsaw Ghetto with his hands in the air and the gun pointed at him, and the other very famous photograph that actually Yossi Kandalevi has also written about in Azure, the three photographs, uh, the photograph of the three soldiers standing in front of the Kotel, right, which is not a religious photograph because their heads are uncovered and they're facing away from the wall. They're not facing the wall. They're not praying. Their heads are uncovered. It's not a military photograph. There's no weapons. It's just the exact opposite of the boy in the Warsaw Ghetto. The boy in the Warsaw Ghetto is all alone. These three guys are standing next to each other. The boy in the Warsaw Ghetto is wearing his very finest. One of the ironies of the story is that his parents had actually made Aliyah, did not like it here, and went back. Okay. He also survived. He's alive and well in upstate New York, actually. It's a whole long story, which we're not going to go into. But that's also one of the great ironies, that they had gone here, come back. He's in his finest, with his hands in the air. They're in their uniforms, with their hands hardly in the air. There's a gun in his picture, and it's pointed at him. There's no gun in their picture, but whether one, were there a gun, it would be pointed by them, presumably. And presumably they had not gotten to the Kotel without using their guns just minutes or hours earlier. The two pictures are the exact opposite. 
And that, the switch, the existential switch between those two pictures effectively summarized for us what the state of Israel had done. The state of Israel had changed the existential condition of what it meant to be a Jew. We convinced ourselves that we were fundamentally invulnerable now. They can't touch us. And that's why we have this lustful love affair with these, I think, personally ridiculous posters of guys in talus and tefillin standing on tanks. But really, why, what is this about, this idolatrous thing of the tank and the boy and the talus and the tefillin? First of all, you don't drive a tank in talus and tefillin. It gets caught up in all of them. You know, you can't, you can't really dive in that way, and you can't really fight that way. So what do we love that picture so much? Because, and this, there's a gazillion of them. We love it because it actually symbolizes the new us. We're still the Jews. I mean, who else would put on talus and tefillin? Right? It's not in style. Okay? But we're clearly a different kind of Jew. Not even in the tank. We're on top of the tank. We're at the top of the world. So you have these two radically, radically different mythologies. The Bible saying you can be a nation without a state, which is good because the state is going to be taken away from you. And the state of Israel says it is never going to be taken away from you. One point as an aside, but I think it's an important aside, about Iran. Because Iran actually threatens to change that story. And that's why Iran matters. I don't want to get into politics here. don't want to get into a whole to-do about it. But I want to say one thing about Iran in light of this mythology. The reason that I think people like Bibi Netanyahu and Sipi Livni and Ehud Barak, all of them, mean it when they say, not on my watch, is because they understand the minute Iran has the bomb, the mythology is destroyed. They don't have to use it. They just have to have it. They have to have it to reverse the, proj the progress that was made by that mythology. Because the mythology is really just a reflection of what Zionism promised. Zionism promised a lot of things, some of which it's made good on, and some of which it hasn't made good on. Promised us sovereignty, it's made more than good. It promised us a rebirth of the Hebrew language, it's more than made good. It promised us a flourishing of Jewish culture, it's more than made good. It's promised us a whole lot of things, a place where we would be comfortable, would be the majority, would be the defining thing, it's made good. It promised us peace and safety, it's failed. But it hasn't failed nearly as badly as it will have failed if they get the bomb. Because the main thing that Zionism promised, and that goes back to this mythology, was that the days in which we live, or the days in which we die, because they've decided that it's time for us to live, or they've decided for it's time for us to die, those days are over. We may live or we may die, but not because they decide. And the days in which we can stay in England, or the days in which we can't, because they get tired of us in 1295, so you've got to go. Or you can stay in Spain, but then you've got to go in 1492, because they just don't want us anymore. Or you can stay in Poland and in Germany and all the places that certain White House press corps people would have us go back to as long as they decide that it's okay to stay there. That's over. That's over. Now, when you sit in this neighborhood or the next neighborhood over where we live and you tuck your kids into bed or Yemir Tzashem. Yeah, it would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. Oh, really? Shatova. Okay. It'll happen eventually. Oh, hi. Um, you sit on the side of the bed and you tuck your kid in. And you do it the same way you do in America. You know, the, the, the door has to be open 37.895 degrees. And the nightlight has to be on and 3.6 stuffed animals on and one paw hanging over the edge. And we even have a Hebrew, Hebrew translation of good night moon, so there's a liturgy also. We have it. We have it. How are you going to put a kid to bed without a good night moon? What do you think? You're going to sing Shema? That's ridiculous. <laughs> you say to your kid, I'll see you in the morning. And you mean it. And you can promise it. And you can keep the promise. The minute they have the bomb, when you say to your child, I'll see you in the morning, what you really mean is, I'll see you in the morning unless tonight's the night. And last year I said, I'll see you in the morning, and I could mean it because either your father or your uncle or your brother or somebody, they were out there. And they were making sure that I could see you in the morning. And they're successful. 
There's thousands of them out there. Every night and every day. Thousands and thousands and thousands of them. Making sure that I can kiss you good morning. That's their job. But the minute that he has that thing, they can be wherever they want by Abashaba Aviru Vayam. It doesn't make any difference. He pushes the button and I won't see you in the morning. And that's the end of the Zionist promise. It's the end of the security that Zionism brought us. It's the end of the days when we don't live and die because they decide. We're back to where we were. And that's why I believe these Israeli leaders when they say, not on my watch. I believe them because I think they understand that one of the things this country has taught us is that you do not get liberty without fighting for it. And you do not keep liberty without fighting for it. When my parents were teenagers and they saw an evil rise up over across the horizon, they were born in the 30s, they watched as the Western world turned itself into a fighting machine of unprecedented size to destroy the evil. My children, no longer teenagers, but recently so, watched in their teenage years as another evil grew up over the horizon and watched the Western world do nothing. Do nothing. The Western world basically assumed the Bible's stance of impotence and inevitability. What are we going to do? And if there's these two mythologies, the one of there's not much that you can do. And the one is that we are invulnerable and intend on remaining invulnerable. If and when, and I don't know, if and when the day comes that Israel decides to do something and the world shrives Gewalt, it'll be because the Western world did not have a Churchill and the Western world did not have a Roosevelt. That's to be the only reason. So Zionism was that promise. And they were both brilliant strategies. The Bible strategy which prepared you for exile by separating nationhood from statehood was a brilliant strategy. And Zionism's mythology of invulnerability, which wasn't apparent at the beginning of Zionism, but by 73 was well entrenched, was also a brilliant strategy because it was to say this is a successful movement. This is a success. We are not where we were in 1938. We are not where we were in 1943. We are not where we were in 1945. We are different. They can't budge us. That was also a brilliant strategy. Now I want to tell you what's wrong with both of those brilliant strategies. And I'm going to do the other way around. We'll start with the second one first and then go back to the first. What's wrong with the second strategy is, is that it's wrong. Other than that, it's fine. It's just wrong. And I don't mean only that it's wrong because Iran could get the bomb, although it could and that would be bad. But it's wrong in a much different way. Because in ways that we all understand but we don't think about enough, the world is in an active, engaged process of convincing itself and each other that the creation of this country was a mistake. A word that is actually used. Some of us saw it this morning, so I apologize for the brief repetition. But Richard Cohen writes in the Washington Post, the Washington Post, that the creation of Israel says the greatest mistake that Israel can make is to forget that Israel itself is a mistake. Not mine. Don't say, oh, I didn't write it. Howard Zinn, the author of The People's History of the United States, has an article in this April's issue of Moment magazine. It's probably online. You can go find it. In which he says explicitly that the creation of the state of Israel was a mistake and that what the Jews should have done was look for other lands that they could have gone to. That's what he says. He's a historian. I thought they did look. I have this vague recollection of boats getting turned away from America, from Canada, from Palestine. I used to have to look for other places to go. And Tony Jute, in 2003, in the New York Review of Books, doesn't use the word mistake because he's a professor, so he says it more eloquently. But what he says, basically, is that Israel is an anachronism because it superimposed a 19th century separatist project on a 20th century world which had already moved far beyond ethnicity and boundaries and nation states and all of that. But what they all have in common, and what many, many more people have in common, and what reports that hold Israel accountable to standards of warfare that ensure that you can never fight an insurgency situated in the midst 
of a civilian population, doesn't mean we did everything right. Doesn't mean that. And it doesn't mean that you should never check yourself very carefully. Doesn't mean that either. But it means that fundamentally, and especially read Alan Dershowitz's critique of the Goldstone Report, and you get a sense of the way in which this was a condemnation, not of Israel's fight, but that Israel chose to fight. But the world wasn't complaining for eight years when Steyrot was getting shelled. Now why does all that matter? That all matters because the world is busy convincing itself that this country is a bad idea. It's a bad idea philosophically. It's a bad idea demographically. It's a bad idea politically. It's a bad idea regionally. It's a bad, bad idea. Now who cares what they think? I'll tell you who cares. There are countries that are founded on ideas. Or there are countries that come to represent ideas. And when those ideas are proven to be wrong or immoral, the country actually collapses. South Africa is an example. It may not have been founded for apartheid, but by a certain point, that's what it stood for. That was South Africa. You do the Rorschach test, or the I say a word, you say a word game. I say South Africa, you say apartheid. Now you say Mondial, but that's a different story altogether. But back then, what's the World Cup for people that uh, weren't watching the final? Okay, whatever. Um, World Cup is soccer. Soccer is a sport. You don't have it, but it's a, they kick a ball. It's a long story. In any event, South Africa failed because the idea was proven to be ultimately impossible. The world rejected the idea. The world rejected South Africa. South Africa fell. What? F.W. de Klerk just woke up one day and decided that he was going to be a different kind of guy. He had no choice. His country was falling apart, literally falling apart. And the Soviet Union, which had one of the world's largest armies, collapsed without a single bullet being fired. Because nobody believed it anymore. The Western world had long since stopped believing it. Soviet citizens then stopped believing it. And then the Soviet soldiers didn't believe it either. They knew the whole thing was a gigantic charade. The idea that Stalin and communism were bringing prosperity and unprecedented productivity, it was a joke. And they all knew it was a joke. So the world's largest empire just crumbled. Ideas are unbelievably powerful things. That's the business that we Jews are in. We're in the business of ideas because we think they're unbelievably powerful. But when they're wrong, they're unbelievably fragile. So if you can convince the world that this idea is wrong, you can eventually convince American Jews that this idea is wrong, and you know as well as I do that a lot of American Jews are beginning to wonder if this idea is wrong. And you can begin to convince some Israelis that this idea is wrong, and a lot of Israelis are beginning to wonder, in certain segments of the population especially, then the country can actually collapse. We're not invulnerable, not because of MiGs and tanks and maybe even a bomb. That's not why. We're vulnerable because ultimately this country is about an idea. And the idea is being contested in the world, left and right. And everybody is weighing in except for the Jews. Tell me one articulate thing that any body of the Israeli government, an idea, not they had clubs on the flotilla. That's not an idea. Tell me an idea that somebody has said in the last five years from the Jewish world which says something profound to defend the idea of the state. Nothing. Nothing. The world is talking about the end of the nation state as a good model. The world is talking about the disenfranchisement of the Palestinians from their rightful lands. The world is talking about all sorts of things which actually, if it wasn't Israel and our own homeland, we would actually probably be on their side. And many of us are, and some of us aren't, and it doesn't matter. But an idea, an idea that we've contributed to this battle about the legitimacy and the importance of an ethnic commonwealth in the Middle East for the Jews, it's been a very long time. If you were to say, it's time to rewrite the Zionist idea. Arthur Hertzberg's second volume. He, unfortunately, is longer with us. But somebody's going to do it. The Hartman Institute is going to actually now sponsor this. It's going to bring in somebody who's really an expert on Zionism, and it's going to now do volume two. He's got, I don't know, 1,000 pages, 1,500 pages of stuff, including, by the way, the world's best single volume introduction to the Zionist concept or the concepts. Now you want to do volume two. What are you going to put in post-1960? What goes in? They had clubs on the flotilla. They're not starving in Gaza. There's a profound idea. What are you going to put in? Silence. It's not a shy group. Nobody's raising their hand and saying, but you should put in whoever. Now, I know you could find people that said interesting things. 
You compare the Zionist idea and the richness of intellectual discourse to what Zionism was all about, to what it is today, and we've dropped out of the idea business. Dropped, we've gone back to defending it. We've played defense. We had a right to attack Gaza because they bombed they wrote. But we did, I think. But that's not an idea. It's not going to inspire anybody. We went into Lebanon because the north wasn't safe. True, but so what? We got out of Gaza and they made a mess of it. Okay. It's pathetic. It's completely pathetic. There's not a place in the world except for actually this building, which is doing a new project of extraordinary importance. But if you leave actually our two institutions aside, and a few others, we'll grant it, we'll, we'll let a few people in the club. But by and large, the Jewish world is being silent about this. And that's why we're not invulnerable. Because the battle's not about airplanes and tanks and big guns anymore. The battle, they're so smart. They've taken the battle to the battlefield of ideas. We haven't even put on our uniforms and laced up our boots. We're not saying anything worth hearing. That's why that mythology is dangerous. Because it pretends that as long as you have F-15s and F-16s, and they're a little bit better than America's because we upgrade them, I don't know, with quad speakers or whatever we put in, right? You know, they were actually better. But that's just not interesting. It's important. It's necessary. You can't live without it. But it is not going to keep you in business. So the danger of that mythology is that it's a myth. A myth in the colloquial sense of the word. It's just false. Here's what you can say about the state of Israel. I think the following two statements are true. And I think they are not true of any other country on the face of the planet. Statement number one. It is possible that in 50 years, this country will be thriving. It'll be a first world country, even in the ways in which it's not yet. It'll be at the helm of this high-tech medicine, humanities, you name it, da-da-da-da. Democracy will be flowering, da-da-da-da. You can get the whole image. 50 years, we're going to be there. It's plausible. Statement number two, in 50 years, this country won't be here. Also plausible. And there is no country on the planet other than Israel about which you can say that. There's countries which you think might not be there. North Korea, right? It might not be here in 50 years. But you cannot, in your wildest imagination, say that in 50 years it's going to be a leader in anything except starvation. You can't. And China may be weaker, China may be poorer, but in 50 years there's going to be a China. We're the only country in which you can imagine a flourishing future and in which you can imagine a non-existent future. Everything hangs in the abeyance, which is why a notion of invulnerability is really false and dangerous. I want to say one other thing about this notion of vulnerability. There's almost nothing more exhausting than fooling yourself. We've all done it. About our kids, about our jobs, about our lives, about our happiness. There's nothing more exhausting than telling yourself what you know not to be true. And we are expected to be a whole country of boys and filling on tanks. We're supposed to be brave. We're supposed to be unfearful. And you know what? We're not. And the internal discord, the cognitive dissonance between what those people who love Israel outside want of us and what we really feel is unbelievably exhausting. We're used to this invulnerability thing. So just tell me more that we're unvulnerable over there, guys, because that's what we need. So this, what's the newest poster? It's supposed to be on the Merkava 4 and bigger tefillin. But it's actually not funny because it's exhausting. Because we are the first generation of Israeli parents to send our kids to war without the illusion that our children won't do the same thing. Our children will send their kids to war. They just will. And we're the first generation of Israeli parents to send our kids off to war without being able to say, if they just stick it out this one generation, it'll be over. So when you do that, and you see no end in sight. And all they want from you over the ocean is another poster, 
of another boy on a tank. It's hard. And the following scenario repeats itself in thousands of Israeli homes every night. Because our kids are not fighting in Afghanistan. They're not in Iraq. People drive their kids kugel on Friday afternoon. Get in the car, you go, you drive a half an hour, four minutes, two minutes, an hour, two hours. Take your kid kugel. People do it. We don't. We don't make kugel at home. Why should he get it in the army? But that's beside the point. Seriously, you want a kugel, there must be a store where you are. Okay? They may only speak Arabic, but there must be a store. So he's right around the corner, and his cell phone works. And you call him every night, if you can call your kids. Some people can, some people can't. And he answers, and he says, yeah, fine day, hard day, good day, bad day. And then you call, and he doesn't answer. And it's 10.30 at night. So now you know. And I'll ask you, what do you do? You're really tired. So you go upstairs, wash your face, brush your teeth, slip between the sheets and say goodnight, knowing that he's out there? Knowing that he's going to be out there all night long? That when you were his age, your biggest problem was whether you'd be able to get to Boston to see your girlfriend, who's now his mother? That was your big worry in life. Will I get there again this weekend? That was a big worry. So you don't go to sleep. And a lot of people, in a lot of homes, in a lot of cities, put up a pot of coffee and sit at the kitchen table and look at the same page of the same novel, hour after hour, doing nothing more than waiting for the clock to tick to dawn. And then he calls in the morning and he lies and he says, oh, I just got your message. I don't know where I was. I must have missed your call. And he's lying and you know he's lying and he knows that you know he's lying and the whole charade goes, but you know what? It's too late because you were up all night. And I have to go to work. And you might have younger kids. And before he's out, more kids could be going in. So to pretend that you're invulnerable when you face that makes it all the more impossible. And I will share this one thing. I wasn't going to say it, but someone in the audience reminded me of it. Our daughter got married a few months ago. Mazel tov, thank you very much. Okay. Now, where were you when we paid the bills? Okay, now... It's a pretty wonderful thing to see your daughter under the chuppah with a guy who could not be more perfect for her. Really, just couldn't be more perfect. And it's 97% joy. But I, standing under the chuppah, this literally happened, standing under the chuppah, her standing next to him, my wife, his parents, the whole shebang. For a split second, I realized this is the beginning of a new phase. And one day, God willing, they'll have kids. And in my mind, as I was racing through the hukshul, the chuppah was going forward at the whole time. I realized that if they have kids one day, her face is going to turn as white as my wife's face turns on those Sunday mornings when he goes back to the army. There is this moment when he gives a hug, love you, talk to you, puts on the backpack, walks out the door, and she's almost always sitting at the table with a cup of coffee and the newspaper and a face as white as this. And you don't want it for your daughter. You don't want your daughter to know that sheer terror. And so when they want you to pretend that you're invulnerable and that really it's about talus and filling and tanks, it's exhausting. So this mythology of invulnerability was unbelievably necessary because it got us out of the Shoah. The Shoah was over, but it got us out of the Shoah emotionally and spiritually and existentially because we said we are now the three boys in front of the Kotel, not the boy in the Warsaw Ghetto. But it has an underbelly, which is that it's not about tanks anymore. It's about ideas. And in that battle, as I said before, we haven't even laced up our boots. And the first narrative is also dangerous because it kind of inures us to the idea of defeat. And I get told this by people so many times, it's unbelievable. You put out a little column in the Jerusalem Post or the New York Times or whatever, and you say, well, obviously, the fate of diaspora Jewry is dependent also on the state of Israel, which seems to be obvious. I never back it up. 
And you get all these emails from people that say, what are you talking about? That's the most counterintuitive thing I've ever heard. And their argument is good. It says this. For 2,000 years we survived without a state. We've had one for 62. It's nice. It's great. The hotels are getting better. The traffic is not. The drivers are certainly not. But we like it. It's good. We're happy you have it. And we don't want it to go bad. But to say that the future of diaspora jewelry as we know it depends on that, are you kidding me? 2,000 years gets erased by 62 years? That is the danger of the biblical mythology of the inevitability of demise. It convinces you you're going to lose the state, or you may very well lose the state, and it wouldn't be good, but it wouldn't be terrible. You can have the end of the state without the end of the Jewish people. So the invulnerability argument says, I don't have to get involved in the battle of ideas. I have F-16s. Ideas is for professors. Not interesting to me. And the biblical mythology says, I don't need to get involved in the battle of ideas to save the state because I'm really busy and I don't want the state to go anywhere. But if the state, God forbid, goes somewhere, I mean, you know, they close West End Avenue for some of us Torah. No, seriously, they do. They really do. And there's kosher restaurants all over the place. And in some of them, it's not so loud that you can't hear yourself. I haven't heard combos ones yet, but okay. I mean, I don't want the country to go bad. I really, really, really don't. But if it does, the Jewish people will be here. That's what we believe. That's how we're acting. Because the battle for the ideas about the state has been raging for years, and we haven't said a single thing that makes a difference. So the two opposite mythologies both conspire. I don't need ideas because I'm invulnerable. I can't use ideas because at the end of the day, I'll be fine either way. And the upshot of it is, we're not in the battle. We're actually not saying what this country is about. Not only for the Jews, but for humanity. About the kind of human flourishing that is possible when a nation returns to its soil. You know who understands the ideas? Palestinians understand the ideas. We gave birth to Palestinian nationalism. We really did. They saw what a bedraggled people could turn itself into in the space of a decade or two when it came back to its land. And they said, we want some of that. Sort of a paraphrase of when Harry met Sally. We want that nationalism. We want that flourishing. We want that thriving culture. We want that sense of pride. And now we get it. We get it. You need to have a country for that. So, yeah, we'd like a country too. So the world says, Israel is actually an anachronism because it's superimposing a 19th century model on a 20th century that's moved beyond. But then in the next article, Tony Jude also says it's time to make them a state. Now, why ours is an anachronism and theirs is a necessity has never been entirely clear to me. But that's where we are. But the Palestinians understand that this is about ideas. They actually really do. And you know who else understands it? The, the Chechnyans understand it. And the Basques understand it. And the Tibetans understand it. There are all these people out there who really get that human flourishing depends on having your own nation. That's why the Soviet Union fell apart into all the Stans. Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, etc. Ikhvesistan. Right, the only one we know, as I said before, the only one we know is Kazakhstan because of Borat. But there are, actually, there are, there are a lot of them. Right? And they're not all as dumb as Borat made them seem. They were actually under something very important. We don't want to be Soviet citizens. We don't want to be erased. We don't want to be erased from history. We don't want to be erased from the panoply of human diversity. We don't want our language erased. We don't want our culture erased. Providing breathing life into those things gives us meaning, gives us purpose. We do not want to be Czechoslovakia. We want to be the Czech Republic and Slovakia, and now we are. We don't want to be the Soviet Union. We're going to be, I think it's 22, 27, whatever number of countries it is, because we have our own languages. We're not the same. All those people get it. Even the citizens of the European Union get it. Not their leaders. But there's incredibly interesting stuff being done now on the attitudes of rank-and-file European citizens to what's happening to Europe because of the European Union. Forgetting the economics of it. They're mourning something. There was an article in the International Herald Tribune about three, four, five, six days ago called Make My Latte Local. 
and you can't find it on the web because we've tried it. It's one of those rare articles in the 21st century that went into print and didn't go into the web. But Make My Latte Local was that there's this response to Starbucks everywhere. People are saying, no, I don't want a Starbucks. I want to do it the way we French have always done it. We Italians have always done it. We Turks have always done it. I mean, the Turkish coffee, right? We have traditions. All over the world, you see people saying, I don't want to be monopolized by these dramatic global things. It's not good that the same stores that I can go to on Madison Avenue and Fifth Avenue are the stores in the Champs-Élysées and the stores in Tel Aviv. It's not good. So we want it back. So there are peoples all over the world who get it, and we're not among them. And I want to say, for the last part of this presentation, that I think here we have to take exception to the implication of the mythology of the Tanakh, which is that I think it's not true that we would survive the loss of the state. By that I do not mean that we would disappear as Jews, that there'd be no curious oil. There'd be a curious oil. No, there would. And there'd be Jews. But the Jewish people as we know it, on the Upper West Side, and on the West Side of LA, and in Newton, Massachusetts, and down in South Florida, and in all of the places where we talk about Judaism flourishing as it's never flourished in the Galut before, those places would end. They would end because we have completely internalized what it was that Israel has done to the existential condition of the Jew. We take the existential condition of the Jew as revitalized by Israel so for granted and as so natural that to lose that would be the second major blow in the space of a century and we wouldn't survive it. Now, there's something unbelievably important about Hatikva when he says, Because those of us who know Tanakh have been told or have known or whatever that if you look in Yechezkel 37, I think 11, the prophet says there in the very famous image of the Valley of the Dry Bones, he said, Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. And comes Naftali Hertz Imber and says, I don't buy that. I reject that idea. Our hope is not yet lost. What Israel has done is it has injected us with a belief in the possibility of new beginnings. You can come this close to extinction and you can out of the ashes of the Shoah build something new. But if that something new dies, then the entire new lease on life is quickly gone. And think about it. Even these Jews in America, the people that you are so beautifully and wonderfully ministering to in the very best sense of that word, and even the ones who are annoyed about the Gaza and the flotilla and the settlements and the this and the that, even those, they get totally exercised about this country. Totally exercised. Name one other thing about Judaism that exercises them. Name one other thing where they'll write a letter to the editor, where they'll get upset, where they'll, they'll join a group, they'll join a Facebook thing, they'll get a Facebook account so they can join a group. They'll get a Facebook account so they can join and then drop out of a group. They'll do whatever. Name one other issue. They get upset about the conversion issue, but only because it has implications for here. We just It's a lightning rod. Even the people who despise Israel's policies, deep down they understand that it matters so much because this is the new lease on life. They don't use the same energy to argue about denominations. They don't invest the same energy to argue that the JCC should be open on Shabbat, which is an important issue. But they just don't get that riled up about it. They don't get riled up about anything the way they get riled up about Israel, whether they're on the left or the right or in the middle. It doesn't matter. They don't get riled up because they know it deep down. It doesn't matter as much. Because the future of the Jewish people does not depend on whether the JCC is open. It's an important issue, but the Jewish people will survive either way. And the Jewish people doesn't depend on any of our denominations because they didn't exist 400 years ago and they won't exist 200 years from now. They'll be something else. They are means to an end. They are means to perpetuating Torah. So this denomination or that denomination can disappear at the end of the day. The kibbutzim may also disappear. It'll be sad because it was great, the Hora and the Kovat Tembel and the accordion. But you know, the country's going to be okay without the kibbutzim because they serve their purpose and we move on. 
The same thing with all these forms of Judaism that we're spending our lives on. Not, but we're not spending because we care about the denominations. We care about the Judaism. But nothing in the Jewish world gets people exercised the way Israel does, even when they're furious at Israel, even when they're ashamed of Israel, even when they feel excluded by Israel and marginalized by Israel. Nothing else gets them that worked up, because deep down in their kishkas, they really understand. The contemporary Jewish existential condition is a product of the new reality that Israel has created. It just is. And if, God forbid, we lose it, the sense of unbelievable double loss, first the loss of the people, the bodies that went into the air, and then the loss of the hope, I don't believe we transcend that. Everybody here who's in the congregational rabbinate knows that it is malarkey to say what some of those Hallmark cards say, which is that God never gives out more than a person can take. It's just wrong. And it's an offense to say something like that. Because we all know broken people. We all know people who couldn't bounce back anymore. And they don't die, but they don't live. And that would be us. We wouldn't disappear, but we wouldn't be. That's what's at stake. Everything's at stake. And therefore, I suggest to you the following. I think we need a new mythology. We have to honor the biblical mythology and recognize its brilliance. And we have to celebrate that period of Jewish life when for a short breather we actually believed in invulnerability. But we need a new mythology that says that we are not destined inevitably for demise, but neither are we invulnerable. We need a new mythology that actually says it is all in our hands. Everything, I don't mean this is an anti-theological thing. I think mean, it's up to us. Everything is in our hands. Everything may be illuminated, but everything is in our hands. It's up to us. It's up to us to leave behind the notion that it's invariably going to be okay. And it's up to us to leave behind the notion that if it's not okay, it'll be okay. Because it won't be okay. We have to lace up our boots. We have to get into the fight. There's no guns, and there's no airplanes, and there's no missiles, and there's no soldiers. There's mines. It's the greatest natural resource of the Jewish people. And to start having the argument that people like Michael Sandel and Charles Taylor and lots of other people are having, they're having it about life in general, not about Israel, but it's time to start defending the idea of this country. Stop being on the defensive. Well, we had to do this because they did that. Or we shouldn't have done this because now look how many people died. That's such the wrong questions. We should criticize ourselves under a microscope all the time, but not delude ourselves into thinking that that's the real issue. Because we have to understand what the real issue is. The real issue is that this is the country that restored hope to the Jewish people. This is the country that proved to ourselves, to the Palestinians, and to lots of people across the globe that you can have a particular dynamic kind of human flourishing when a nation sits on its own land. This is the country that completely changed our conception of what it means to be a Jew. And the people who have to do the work are you and me. We have to do this work. Nobody else is going to do this. We have to explain to our congregants and to our students and to our communities that this is about ideas, not tit for tat on the battlefield. And we have to use our educations and our knowledge and our interest in books to begin to engender the serious conversation about what this country's idea is and fight back in the realm of international discourse. Because that, more than anything else these days, is going to determine what happens. We didn't choose to be born the year that we got born. That's our parents' fault. But we're, we're whatever age we are now, and we're alive, and we can think, and we understand exactly what is going on out there. We understand that Helen Thomas was just stupid enough to say what lots of people think. So she lost her job. But that's irrelevant. It's becoming the norm of discourse out there. So, Mia Dea Imleit Kazot Higat Lamalchut. 
I leave you the following question. I hope that the vision of 50 years will be the first one. That there'll be unprecedented flourishing and unprecedented acceptance of the Jewish people and the Jewish state all across the globe. And then I hope that one day, all of us will have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and they'll say to us the following thing. Back then in 2010, way back then, and in 2015 and in 2020, when the world tried to convince itself that the Jewish state was a really bad idea, because I've, I've read about that. Tell me, what did you do? What did you do? Kimio Dea. You have been listening to Rabbi Daniel Gordis. You can hear more from the Shalom Hartman Institute by subscribing to this podcast. For information about the Hartman Institute and our courses in North America and Israel, go to hartman.org.il. The Hartman Institute podcast is produced by Tony Jason. Music by Kevin McLeod. I'm Alan Abbey. Thank you for listening, and we will see you again next time.